Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. Matthew Dickerson. Tech, 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 tech talk. Tech, 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 tech talk. Sit back and relax. It's time to talk technology. Greetings, Earthlings, and welcome to another Mint Condition episode of Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. Today, we're taking yet another sneak peek into the future of everything. And the future looks like boats. Big ones. Very big boats, folks. And it tastes like chicken. Laboratory-grown chicken, minus the clucking. And it sounds like big, ballsy speakers booming a big sound through your entire body. But you'll never know where it's coming from. And speaking of big sounds, crank up your speakers to 10, folks, because Matthew Dickerson has just walked into the room, which means we've got to get this show on the road. How's things going, Matt? Can we go to 11? I always like to go to 11. All right, let's get it to 11. <laughs> okay, now we're All the way up. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of 11, I had a fair bit of noise this week when I got to visit a school. And what dawned on me... They let you into a school. Apparently, yes. Oh, well done. I had to go and fill a few forms <laughs> and, and prove a few checks there, but apparently I've been misunderstanding this whole concept of climate change because I talked to a primary school. So the maximum age there would have been about 12. Mm. And what I realised as I spoke to these children was that it's not climate change for them because they're not changing. Mm. Our age people have got to change what we do. We've got to change the way we see the world. We've got to change what we're doing in this world. For these 12-year-olds and younger the things that we have to change are their new reality. So it was a great dawning for me when I was talking to them and I said, what about these things? I just mentioned a few things around climate change, but they were doing them. They were planning on these things. It seems normal to them. Correct. And I went, oh, wow, this is fantastic. All these things I've been talking about where we've got to make all these changes, as the generations come through, maybe it's not quick enough, but as they come through, it's just going to be the norm for them. So I talked about electric vehicles. We actually brought along four electric vehicles for the kids to have a look at and have a play with. And uh, a couple of the kids eventually got to have a ride in one. Was there ooing and ahhing or was oh. it like, oh, that's just normal? Well, it was a <laughs> bit of, wow, that's cool. But they knew the specs. Yeah. They knew all this information about them. We had a Tesla Model Y there. They said, can it do the light show for us? So we got the light show yeah. going. They knew this sort of stuff. So that was actually quite comforting that they were on top of it. They knew all about it. And again, for I, I got them to put their hand up, you know, who in the room has got an electric vehicle or whose parents, and no hands went up. Mm. Solar panels, who's got solar panels on your roof? A lot of hands went up. About 70% of the kids in the room put their hands up. And I thought, well, that's fantastic. But mm. again, when those children at the age of 12 in five, six years' time get to the stage where they get to have a car, it will be a norm for them to get an EV, for example. When they get a bit older again and get a house, it'll be norm that it won't have gas in it. It'll have solar panels on it. It'll probably have a battery in it. So all these things mm. that we're talking about change. So change is tough for people. So for the world to make the change it's got to make, we've got to get people like you and I to make change. But for those kids coming through, it won't be that. And the thing that, that struck me, the very next day I walked into a supermarket and there was a young person, probably school age, maybe just about out of school age, maybe he was you know, school finished last year for him, working at the checkout. And I just said, g'day, how are you going? And he said, oh, good. He said, now, how do you find the Ionic compared to your Teslas? And, and I went, wow, that's pretty good. He's done his homework. He knew who I was and then knew what I drove. And I gave him a few bits and he said, well, no, I think the, the Tesla this and the Ionic that. And, and what about the EV6 compared to the Ionic? And so he knew all about these. And I said, That's great. what sort of car have you got? He said, I haven't got a car yet. So again, he's probably at that age where he's almost about to get a car, but he knew all this information and detail around EV. So again, I just thought, wow, that's good. 
our future is in very safe hands. We've just got to make sure there's a future that exists still when they get the chance to use those hands. But I was pretty impressed with the youth of today in terms of where they're headed. So that's all very exciting. That's a big tick for society. Excellent. Well, let's just dive straight into our first episode, oh, first our story, I should say. Okay, folks, we're kicking off today with a countdown. Matt, give us your best Molly Meldrum impression. I'll put on uh, a hat. Does that work on radio? Yeah, is that it does. It counts. I can see the hat, folks. I can vouch for it. A big old wrap-up for the US Top 5 EVs for 2022. I do need the music as if some of those shows were going, Top 5. Countdown. That's the one. So this is interesting. I just thought I'd grab a snapshot. The US isn't quite as advanced as, say, Norway. There are many countries that are ahead of the US in terms of their percentage of EV sales, but they're certainly ahead of places like Australia. So I just thought it might be somewhere you could get a bit of a snapshot and look at those sales. Now, this is only until October, at the end of October, so it's not the full year, not the full last 12 months, Mm. but it gives you an idea where we're headed. So in number five position is, surprisingly enough, a car not available in Australia. It's the Chevy Bolt, and they've got two versions of this. They've got the EV and the EUV. Now, that U stands for utility, Ah. electric utility vehicle. So apparently, despite all the things we've been told, James, there are utilities out there that are electric. (laughs) Wow, what a concept. And they sell quite well so this is the chevy bolt ev euv Twenty-two thousand sales so far this year so that's not bad and chevy you know they're going okay with that the ford f-150 would be up there as well if they could make enough of them but they're just not able to make enough yet yeah Yeah, their pre-orders are through the roof but they just can't produce enough of them number four which surprised me a little bit is the tesla model s 23,500 sales. Now, I thought Tesla Model S, gee, you can't get them at all in Australia at the moment. I'm surprised they're still selling that many oh, in right. the US. You, you can't even buy them. If you go on the, on the website at the moment in Australia, they're just so focused on the three and the Y that you can't even get a Model S at the moment. In America, right. obviously, they still know people want them. Now, the, the Model S used to be the darling of the EVs. Any list you have would have the Model S at the top of the list. But again, Tesla's come along and brought some other models that are maybe a bit different, a bit more people want, maybe a bit priced better than the than what people want mm. compared to the S. But the S is still there at number four. Number three, 28,000 sales, is the Ford Mustang Mach-E. Another car not available in Australia. But again, here's this car, this muscle car that we've seen Hang in the past. Second. Does it make a noise? Like, no, it doesn't it do doesn't? anything. Like it just, not even an artificial noise? It just goes. It goes <laughs> and goes and goes. So for those people that have got an old Mustang that's got some fire-breathing V8 spewing petrol out the exhaust pipes that goes really well, well, they're embarrassed when they sit beside a Mackie at the traffic lights and this Mackie just goes silently off into the distance oh. while they're still <laughs> making lots of noise. So the Mackie, I love the fact that you've got this muscle car. Well, I wonder if it's a case of also people can feel like, you know, people won't be looking at me, they'll think, or sorry, if they're looking at me, they'll think I've got a muscle car mm. uh, that, that makes a lot of noise and, uh, and so I won't, I don't know. I hesitate to use the word emasculating. That's probably not the word I'm looking for. But people want to be uber-masculated yep. by having that big gung, gung, gung. That's right. at least if you're going to look like you've got that. That's right. Perhaps that's something. As long perhaps as people don't pick up. that's eating into the market. Yeah, that's right. When you see the traffic lights, you just can't make the noise. Maybe you can wind the windows down and turn the stereo up really loud or something. Yeah, Maybe yeah, there's something yeah. else like that. So, so number three. Then you get to number two. Now, just keep in mind that number I just said then, 28,000 sales. Right. Number two. Two on the list at 156,500 sales. So you're talking about five times more than five times the number of sales. Wow. So a bit of a gap from two to three That's there. A jump. 
is the Tesla Model 3. And the first oh. thing I saw when I saw, well, hold on, what's going to be number one in this list if the Model 3 is number two, $156,000. So now we're talking about the reason people are talking about Tesla when they say EVs is because they do sell so many. So that's pretty impressive. Mm. Number one at 191500 sales is, of course, another Tesla, Model Y. Oh, there you go. I didn't know they were producing the volume they needed in America at this stage, but obviously because the volume of Ys in Australia is a bit hard to get. Obviously, they're prioritising which markets they go to, so they're sending them to America. So Model Y, 191000 Obviously, the Model 3 went very well when it came out, but people just like that slightly larger car, fit kids in there, mm. maybe a bit easier, maybe some sporting equipment, push bike, whatever, in the back of it. So the Model Y is definitely killing it at the moment. Mm. But when you look at those three models, the S, the Y, and the 3, and then add the X in the X is on this top five list, then Tesla accounts for 60% of EV sales in America. Now, when Well, it's just the name that's associated with, it is, isn't with it? EVs, isn't it? But do you think about any market, any product and someone says I've got 60% market share you're thinking they're going okay that's not yeah. too bad a market share to have so Tesla is killing it and people talk to me about it and I say they just seem to have got so many things right but they also started with a blank sheet of paper and when I say blank sheet of paper well it probably had a blank sheet of paper but it probably involved some wheels and maybe some seats and some basic things that you were thinking of a car but really they said from the ground up let's design this car to be electric, let's forget about everything we know mm. about internal combustion engines and design this from the ground up to be electric. Other manufacturers are still taking what they had and modifying it to some extent. Well, and, and I know some people just feel like they, they need to have that memory as well. You know, they, they've got to feel like when you hop in a car, there's got to be an on button. Um, like there's got to be some sort of ignition switch or, or something. There, there's got to be something to acknowledge that you're going to start this car, whereas with a Tesla... You start it when you put it in gear and, <laughs> and drive off. And you're on buttons, you accelerate. That's <laughs> right. And it is interesting because someone did say to me one time when they jumped in one of my Teslas and they said, oh, it's a bit bland, isn't it? It's a bit sterile. There's, there's nothing there. And I went, well, I actually really like that yeah. bland look, that really uh, functional because you've got the screen with it. But it is a reframing of the mind, though. It is. Because you're expecting to see a, a heavily laden dashboard with dials and all sorts of stuff on it. Buttons and knobs, where are they? Yeah. So you're right, there is that part of it. The other thing that one I just want to quick mention was the Ionic 5, that's the Hyundai Ionic 5, and the Kia EV6. Now, they're basically built on the same platform. Those two companies, Hyundai and Kia, I actually don't know the legal arrangement, but they're sister companies, if you like, out of South Korea. So they've got the same platform, and they're on the same platform, a bit like the Model 3 and the Model Y have got a different lid, for want of a better word. The Kia EV6 and the Hyundai Ionic 5 essentially the same base, and then the two different manufacturers put their own top on those. So their sales, neither of their sales individually made the top five, but if you did consider those two as the one platform, then their sales would be at number three. They'd be about 35,000 sales. Okay. Again, they're not the same, so I'm probably being a little bit cute there, but it just gives you an idea that in that list, the top five, and then add those two in there, maybe top seven in there, for example, there's no Toyota in there, the number one mm. manufacturer in the world at the moment mm. overall. So no Toyota in there. 
The other one that I found interesting is no VW in there. Now, VW are mm. going quite well with some of their vehicles, some of their electric vehicles. It'd be interesting to see the same top five in the UK, sorry, we'll say the UK, but uh, throughout Europe. In Europe, you'd certainly find, I know when I've been to Europe recently, I saw a lot of VW, some of the ID, the various versions of the ID4, ID5 series that they've got. So there are some around there. So it would well, be interesting to see And that. Americans are hugely territorial as well. So they like to buy American cars. Well, you've got the Ford Mustang in there. You've and got the Chevy in there. Yeah. But, you know, Hyundai, Kia... So you've well, got Tesla's some, American brand too. Tesla's American brand, correct. Yeah, yeah. 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 So, so, so there is that bit of patriotism, I yeah. suppose, from that perspective. But it just still does say to me that Toyota, in terms of where we are and that whole thing with we're talking about with Tesla mm. going from the ground up, let's start a new Toyota still going the old-fashioned way. But even some of those other manufacturers are still taking that car that's familiar, a Mustang. I reckon, and I haven't been inside a Mustang Mach E, but I reckon if you looked inside the the dash of that or the cabin of that, it would look very similar because they want their same customers to yeah. feel comfortable with that, but it just goes a lot better. Just, yeah, progressing to, through the normal, yeah. The number of people still paying for things the old cold hard cash way, well, they're thinning on the ground. That's a shout out to the boomers listening in today. Cards are normal. Tap-and-go systems are the most convenient to date. But there's still a degree of fumbling at the gate and holding things up when you're trying to catch a train or a bus in a hurry. No argument. Opal cards and the like streamline things enormously from clunky cash when they were introduced about a decade ago. But there's now pressure to thin this out. or Well, the low-viscosity public transport ticketing system, uh, thinned out at least, to get people paid for and on their way even faster. Matt, anyone who listens to this uh, this podcast re- regularly is going to be uh, well, not guessing where, where we're going with this, <laughs> if I can just spit that out and put my teeth back in. And it is interesting because I was at a function just the last couple of days and there were a number of stalls along where you could buy various things, lollies and pizzas and coffee and all sorts of things. And they're all pretty busy. All these stall holes were pretty busy. And the coffee people were sitting in front of their coffee van, just relaxing in some chairs, and I was a bit surprised that they weren't as busy as everyone else, because there were a fair few people at this particular event, and there are lots of activity, and people love their coffees now. How many times do you see people walking yeah, down the street yeah. with their There's hand in front of them? There's always a queue at the coffee. Yeah. yeah, you kind of think that. And I went over and said day and just had a bit of a chat to them, and then someone came over to buy a coffee beside me, and the first thing they said was, oh, we're cash only. And this person went, oh... I don't have any cash, sorry, and walked away. And I went, that's why they're sitting in front of the coffee van because they're only taking cash. Who carries cash anymore? Who is going to come along and say, oh, I brought that cash, so here you go. So I just thought they're just doing themselves out of so much business by not being able to take credit cards. That's step one. I thought that's pretty basic now in business that you're taking credit card transactions. There's so many different ways to take it. It's so easy to take it. But for whatever reason, they were choosing not to. But it's a bit inconvenient, isn't it, where you've got to, pull your credit card out of your pocket and tap it or your phone or your watch and actually hold it in front of something for a good half a second like well anyone got time for if that? you've got any Sydney listeners out there and they catch public transport regularly and you're trying to get on the tram or the bus or the train quickly and you're trying to get through that 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 gate quickly 
there's always someone who's fumbling around in a purse <laughs> or uh, trying, you know, five goes at tapping this thing. And yeah, they've got their uh, Opal card and they haven't recharged their Opal card or whatever. And, and I, I'm not in Sydney often on. enough to use an Opal card. I just use my watch or my phone when I get onto transport. But you're right, there's always someone there who's and, holding the queue up. And when you've got like 50 people trying to get through there and <laughs> it's just that's one of them that's stuffing around, there's another person who's stuffing around as well. It's, oh, come on, we've just got to get going. So let's throw away that whole concept. Where we're headed next is just proximity sensors. So just forget about holding your phone to a device. Forget that NFC, which we've had with credit cards and and typically phones and watches. Forget the idea of holding it against a reader. We're getting to that point now where you just step onto the train, onto the bus, onto the tram, and it says, oh, James has got a phone in his pocket. He's got the right app loaded up that allows me to take some money out of his account it's done. It happens. You don't even have to line up so at any sort of It's as fast as you getting on and sitting down or standing up, whatever you have to do. That's right. The proximity sensors. Now, it's not just... It's, it's an e-tag for people. It's, that's right. <laughs> and that's actually a good point. It's not actually good enough to run with a tollway, so you would still need some sort of e-tag at this stage because your phone would be too far away mm. from the reader. And the other thing oh, I yeah. thought about with that is that you've got four people in a car one day and you go through a tollway. <laughs> it never gets charged. <laughs> yeah, no, fair enough. Yeah, can I get a lift with you? Sure, but you're going to be paying the toll. <laughs> so when you walk under the bus, that sort of thing. But then it starts to get to that stage where it goes further than that. So I think about e-scooters at the moment you've got to go and scan the QR code and tap on your screen a couple of times maybe how inconvenient all that so <laughs> walking up to an e-scooter literally getting on it that would be how you'd be charged and you'd get off it at the end and you just have that debit automatically I'm sure your mind is ticking over about what problems this might cause but it's all about the convenience that's what the world mm-hmm. wants now we want things to be easy we want things to be simple taxis will get onto this ferries Maybe even getting to the stage where in-flight entertainment, you're sitting in a seat and you think, I wouldn't mind watching that movie. You're using the Wi-Fi on the plane, so tap that. It automatically works out what seat you're in because you're sitting at that seat and it just debits your phone. So mm. we're getting to that stage where it'll just be your phone hanging around certain things. That'll be enough to charge you. Well, people are saying they you know, worry about this proximity sensor. Like, uh, does that mean that, you know, if someone has the wherewithal to be able to pretend that they are Sydney buses or whatever, (laughs) is there a chance that I might get docked five bucks? Randomly as you walk through a crowd. So people have talked to me about that before, about this whole idea that they put their credit card in a little pretend sleeve, Faraday cage sleeve, which obviously Mm. never really does anything. It's Mm. completely useless. But they're worried about walking through a crowd. And I've always said to them, well, NFC readers need to be very close. It needs to be mm. basically touching your card or incredibly close. And you know that when you pay for something at the supermarket, you hold it a metre above there, it's not going to do anything, you've got to touch it. So I've always joked, if you see someone with an FPOS machine walking through a crowd, <laughs> bumping up against your jeans pocket where your, your wallet is, then be concerned. But if you're just walking through a crowd and you're not having that happen to you, you're pretty safe. But now we're talking about proximity sensors that Mm. don't need to be bumped up against you. They can be a bit further away. So it absolutely opens up the possibility of scams that you're talking about. Now, the thing is for it to work, you would say, a bit like with uh, an Opal car, for example, you might have an Opal app and it's not called that, but let's say that, for example, and you would go into the Opal app and you would say, I'm authorising the Opal app when it recognises an Opal proximity sensor as I get onto a tram, for Ah, example, then oh, I know who you are, I've authorised you to work, and away you go. So the way a scammer 
would work it. I'm not trying to give hints out here, but the way a scam would work it is they would have to replicate the credentials of, as you said, Sydney buses or that same Opal sensor for it to match up with your your app to say, yes, I know, it's okay, I'm letting them do this, rather than just be anyone with a proximity sensor mm-hmm. walking through a crowd just scamming everyone. But there are some clever scammers out there, so yeah. replicating someone like an Opal card, surely that's possible because it's just credentials. You've just got to work out what those credentials are. But at this stage, this is where a lot of the research is going from the companies that are working on this is getting that stage where they want to make it safe and secure but convenient. And that's the big thing, the convenience factor. And that's that's where we're all after. And it might just take 10 minutes off your trip from, uh, from Randwick to city centre too. Mm. <laughs> I'm going to come right out and say it. I'm not a huge fan of sharks. <laughs> I couldn't watch Jaws until I was deep into my 20s. And that's the pun intended. But they have an honourable place in balancing marine ecosystems and populations of various species, including stingrays and manta rays, are dwindling in 2022. This is in no small part to the bycatch or accidental fishing by commercial fishers. So a concerted effort to reduce this bycatch, I'll say that properly, has been adopted using devices that emit small electric pulses to steer the sharks away from peril. Matt, how successful is this strategy? Some people would say, who cares if we reduce the shark population? They're not that concerned about it because sharks do instill this incredible fear. Oh, they do. There's not Thank many, you, Steven Spielberg. Well, that's exactly right. There's not many people that die, even in Australia, for example, from shark attacks each year. But we seem to have There's this... not many people that are attacked and that survive either. Well, true, true. <laughs> but we seem to have this fear that seems somewhat... Uh, disproportionate to the actual number of people that die. Many more people die in car accidents, but we don't have a fear of getting into a car going, oh my gosh, I saw it on TV the other day and someone died and it was a horrific accident and all these terrible things that happened with car accidents. Never getting a car ever again. That's right, but swimming, ocean, oh no, there's sharks out there. So there's some people who would be okay with sharks dying, but since 1970, the global number of sharks and stingrays has declined by 71%. And so many That's of our e- it is so many of our ecosystems are so finely balanced that if you did take the sharks out just so we could go for a swim when we felt like doing it, then that would have huge impacts across the whole of the marine life. So there are people out there working on ways to protect the shark population. When people go out fishing, then there are lines they've got, and unfortunately, sharks sometimes get onto those lines. So these particular devices they've got are small cylindrical devices. They put them on the same lines that they're putting out through the ocean and they've just got that small electric pulse. Now, sharks and stingrays have electrosensory organs. So Mm. as they swim up close to that, about to chomp down on this particular bit of line that's there, they go, oh, hold on, I don't like the feeling of that little buzz there. I think I'll go away. So, so far in the testing they've been doing, they've found that they've reduced the number of sharks or stingrays inadvertently caught by 91%. Oh, wow. So not to 100% yet, but again... There's offended. a couple of dumb sharks out there. <laughs> going, oh, it feels I, I like nasty. that buzz. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So they've been doing a fair bit of testing off the coast of France at the moment. They've done a, a number of tests where they do with the sensors, without the sensors on there, without the transmitters on there, and comparing those results. So they've got fairly good scientific processes in place. What we think we'll see as time goes on 
is more of this happening? And you're talking about some of these lines are incredibly long and there's lots of hooks on them. So some mm. lines have 9,000 hooks on them. Again, you just spread oh, these little um, transmitters along the line at various intervals to try and keep those sharks away. The next obvious thing from there is, well, if we can do it along a fishing line, can't we just do it around a beach and just keep them away there? Mm. And the problem with that is... Um, Sure, that's possible, but again, we're talking about little tiny sensors that put out a fairly small amount of electricity, and sharks are going to be fairly close to it. And that's just on one line in the ocean. You think about trying to, like a big shark net, if you like, put a big shark net around and put sensors or transmitters on that big shark line and try and stop a whole beach area. Wow, there's a lot of these out there. And they've got batteries inside them. They go flat, so you'd be changing the batteries forever. So we're not at the stage yet where we can just keep them away from the beaches. So unfortunately, you're going to have to think about jaws when you go swimming each time. But it's good for marine life in general. And uh, I'm thinking about 9,000 hooks on a line and the tangle. Um, how do you <laughs> um, undo that? Yeah, that's uh, right. Don't, don't get it tangled if you're an apprentice. Not a very good commercial <laughs> fisherman, but um, yeah, right. Yeah, don't tingle that line. Oh, sorry, boss. I just <laughs> looped it around that way and oh, look what I've done here. <laughs> We often talk about robots on this podcast, and I reckon for the better part, the direction that we're headed is pretty cool to think about. Well, one South Korean firm is taking a fairly predictable line now in introducing robots into their workplace to do all the mundane and frustrating tasks that fill your day unproductively. Matt, are we calling these menial task droids brainless robots now? Sounds a bit insulting, doesn't it? And one of the things that I'm finding interesting at the moment is South Korea is going quite well in their technology, their innovation, and Japan being a nearby neighbour and usually thinking of themselves as a bit superior, some people in Japan are saying, hold on, South Korea is getting a bit ahead of us. And so we already talked about Hyundai and Ionic, both South Korean companies, and now we're talking about Naver, this particular one is a South Korean firm, and they've built an entire high-rise building around the ability to have these brainless robots helping them. 36 storeys high. Hang on. I'm picturing they've got these bipedal things that are really just slow and crash into walls and stuff and (laughs) knock pot plants over. And And say wrong things. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they're small. They're waist high. They're on wheels. And that's why they've built this whole office building around the ability for these to get around. They've got their own dedicated lifts. So they've got small lifts. And the lifts are designed for these robots to basically get into, go up and down very quickly, so they can get around the office building quickly. And the idea is at this stage, there are people that have got concerns about robots in the office space, as opposed to we've sometimes talked about robots in manufacturing. Fantastic. You need to put a weld on that bit of the vehicle every single time in exactly the same spot and do it over and over without a coffee break. Robots the go-to. In office space, you're working away on things. You need different things. You don't need that particular bit of paperwork taken to Billy or the coffee delivered at the same time every day, or maybe you do with the coffee, but you need different things happening. So you need robots that can follow instructions. Having said that, people will be concerned in the office space. What's that robot doing? Does that mean the boss is checking because it's got cameras in the robot checking what I'm doing? Hold on, I've got confidential information on my screen. Is someone hacking into that robot looking at that screen? So in the office space, these are some of the concerns. Hence, the low height, so the waist high, they can't see your face. The cameras are designed to look around that waist high and lower. 
So they know they're delivering a coffee to someone in a purple shirt. They don't know it's James. <laughs> so that's part of the process. And again, this is where they're saying for robots to get in the office space, we've got to do some things differently. So this is where they're at with these brainless robots. They're not remembering anything. So they've got cameras on them. <laughs> they've got processing power. So they can say, I can go and get you a coffee. But once their coffee's delivered... It doesn't have any recollection. No logs show that James is actually getting 10 coffees a day. Is he really drinking all those coffees? What's he doing with those <laughs> coffees? So these are the things they're trying to do with these robots so that people feel comfortable with them in the office space rather than being very paranoid about robots in the office space. But some of the stuff I saw when I looked at it, they were going and delivering packages around the office to different floors to different people. They were taking post the, the old-fashioned mailman that you see in the movies still. Well, no, the mailman doesn't exist anymore. This robot delivers parcels to various cubicles. It did go and get coffees. It did go and get sandwiches for people. I thought it could have just had a coffee maker on board because surely <laughs> I want a coffee. Bang, there it is. But yeah. no, there was a Starbucks downstairs in this building, so it would actually go down, get the coffee from the oh, Starbucks, wow. bring it back up. So <laughs> it was as real a coffee as Starbucks is. I'm not convinced it is real coffee from a Starbucks, but it's a separate <laughs> issue altogether. But this is really, this company in particular is doing this for their own research. So they built this office block, they've got their own robots, and they want to obviously sell these at some point in time, but they're doing testing in their own environment to see whether or not these are going to be suitable. So a whole range of things there to make them better in the office space. Maybe they'll take off. I don't think everyone wants to build their own dedicated 36-storey high building just to have these robots, but I'm sure <laughs> they'll That's get... commitment. Yeah, that is commitment. Yeah. They'll get better as they go in terms of the testing there, then they'll get them out in a real office space. But I think we will see these at some point in the near future. We've talked before about the leap second and why it became a thing. It became a royal pain in the bum, though. So it looks like there's some international agreement to scrap it. Matt, run us through it again. What was the origin of the leap second? Why is it a nuisance and what's going to happen as a result? Well, way back in 1960, when we got some atomic clocks, well, atomic clocks were around before then, but they were around and decided that they were reliable enough that they said, well, let's forget about trying to work out what time of day it is based on that earth spinning and stuff like that. Let's use atomic clocks to do that. So on the 1st of January 1960, the world adopted Coordinated Universal Time, or UTC as it's known, and then around the world we all talk about UTC plus 10 or plus 9, wherever you might be in the world. So that's where we all have this perfectly matching time. We've all got this exact time across the world. And that was fantastic until the early 70s where they said, oh, you know what? That Earth being a physical thing is not playing by the rules. It's actually slowing down its rotation ever so slightly. So we're actually getting a differential between our perfectly accurate time based on 450 atomic clocks averaging out their time across the world and the Earth spinning. The Earth is not playing the game here. Curse the natural world <laughs> That's and right. the universe. So in 1972, they actually jumped ahead Two leap seconds. So you actually, twice throughout that year, you got to the stage where the countdown to midnight happened, and rather than going 58 seconds, 59 seconds, zero seconds, it, hiccuped. it went to 60 seconds and then zero seconds. So they stuck an extra second in there, which doesn't sound like much, big deal there. A bit like our leap day that we have every four years, then it was a leap second thrown in there. Since that time, we've had 27 leap seconds that have been added since those first ones in 1972. 
2016 was the last one. Actually, 2016 was a bit unusual, a very long year, 2016. And there might be a bunch of reasons you might think it was a long year, but it was a leap year and a leap second. So unlike other leap mm. years, it probably didn't have a leap second. Some did. But you had an extra day and an extra second. So if 2016 felt like a long year dragging. to you. <laughs> 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 well, I thought maybe because Donald Trump was elected that year might have been a long year, <laughs> yeah. but no, it was because it had that leap second and the leap day. But it causes problems. You can imagine a bit like the Y2K problem, when you've got computer systems around the world that are relying on this time being incredibly accurate, because we know now it's really accurate, mm. and then some computers went, hold on, there's a problem here, my time is wrong, my computer login wants to match up the time to make sure I'm not being hacked against a server, oh, it's out, it didn't matter it was out by a second, it was out, mm. so I'm just going to shut down. So way back in 2012, there was a problem with Reddit, and Reddit servers crashed effectively where they couldn't be accessed. And that was down for about, about 40 minutes, which you might think, well, big deal. But I'm sure for Reddit users at the time, that was a big deal. And then in 2017, there was another infamous one where Cloudflare had all its DNS services stopped. So the servers were all there working, but you couldn't actually access those servers. <laughs> now, there were some other small because they didn't agree on the time. Exactly right. Yeah, and think wow. about things like, if I go to an extreme example, when we've got our GPS systems, they rely on a very accurate clock in our device on the ground, an accurate clock in the device in the sky, in the satellite, and then to working at the time it takes for electromagnetic signal to get from one to the other and working out where you are. Now, we're talking about the accuracy of those devices to be about three nanoseconds. So in yeah, three wow. nanoseconds, you can travel at the speed that electromagnetic radiation travels, 3 by 10 to the 8 metres per second, you can travel about 0.9 of a metre. So you think, okay, 3 nanoseconds is not out by much. And most GPS systems say they've got an accuracy within about 5 metres. So that's pretty impressive. But if it's out by a second, mm. within a second, that signal can travel 300,000 kilometres. So <laughs> you're sitting there on your GPS going, I just want to go to a restaurant, and you end up 300,000 kilometres away. It's probably not <laughs> great. So we do rely on time being absolutely accurate with so many of our different devices. And when they did all this in 1960, we didn't have a smartphone in our hand that we were relying on to get to the latest restaurant with a GPS system in the sky. There weren't that many computers to have to worry about. Correct. Surely this technology won't catch on. No, that's right. <laughs> but here we are in 2022. So the organisation, the keepers of time, as I like to call them, but the organisation that's an international organisation, the International Earth Rotation and Reference System Service, the organisation that runs that, said, you know what, we're going to get to the stage where we want to scrap the leap second. And when you think about it, you think, well, if it was out by even 27 seconds now, would we notice? Would we notice if the time that we were mm. saying and the time that the Earth was on was out by 27 seconds, would that be the biggest problem in the world? And basically they're saying it's a bigger problem to have the leap second inserted than that. So they've agreed, and this is the International Bureau of Weights and Measures, have voted to scrap the leap second, but not yet. From the year 2035. Oh. So we might have a couple of interruptions between now and 2035, but from then they've said for a century, for 100 years, no more leap seconds. And I thought about it, I heard one of my kids talk about it one day and I asked them about some particular thing and they said, oh, you know, that's tomorrow John O's problem. And you go, what do you mean by that? Well, I don't have to deal with it today. I can worry about that problem tomorrow. It might be a bigger problem tomorrow, but I'll worry about it tomorrow. And I went, it's a very short-sighted process, but I kind yeah. of feel like that's what they're doing here. They're probably saying, well, that's next generation's problem, 100 years down the track, I won't be around to see what that problem is. <laughs> Having said that, 
if it's taken from 1972 to today to add 27 seconds, then in 100 years, logically, you might say that's close to a minute. So maybe what they'll do is they'll wait 100 years and then have a leap minute because surely it would be easier to deal with one big interruption mm. in 100 years' time than lots of interruptions every couple of years. And a leap minute, I think, would probably cause about the same number of problems as a leap second. So it's interesting even the fact that we have these leap seconds, most people don't know about that, but they don't know about them now, and after 2035, they won't know about them because they won't exist anymore. Well, so. I wonder if, if it'll even matter in 100 years' time, whether or not they'll have another coordination system um, for these things. Yeah, quite possibly. So who knows? And I think that's part of their logic. They're saying it's causing problems for us now, but do we really need to create those problems for ourselves? Maybe there will be some other system in 100 years' time. Let's scrap it for 100 years, and away we go from there. a thing in the 90s, decking out your car with some 12-inch subbies so that you could crank up the doof-doof to 11 and blow the neighbourhood away and your future hearing capacity to smithereens. Speakers were big and powerful and, most importantly, very, very showy. Fast forward to 30 years later, who would have thought that that trend would have had a use-by date? Matt, young bucks trying to impress the chicks on Merrickville Road in 2023, blaring the fat beats on Friday night. A little less about the show these days and a little bit more about the go, thanks to a new wave of ultra-thin hideaway car speakers. I'm not sure if LG have actually done their research properly with this one, James. It sounds fantastic from a technology perspective, but you're right. If you can't open the boot of your car and show the and woofers in there... Big, <laughs> big, enormous thing. There's no space for anything else. Because that's, that's where your speakers are. That's where you know you've got a decent stereo system. <laughs> so the sound might be there, but it's all about, as you say, how big those are and how much you've got to cut out of the doors <laughs> and how much you've got to cut out of the back parcel shelf to fit these enormous speakers with a huge magnet in the back and the big cones yeah. in there. <laughs> LG have done some fantastic work. They've got these particular speakers now that are 150 millimetres by 90 millimetres, but they're only two and a half millimetres thick. Now, LG say that the sound quality they put out is just as good as when you've got that deep cone and that big magnet at the back, the big driver of it. But I'm not sure how, because it's all about moving air. We've got to move air through mm. the air or move sound waves through the air. How do you do that when you haven't got enough depth of that speaker? Yeah. So I don't know how they've done that. But anyway, they are claiming that they've produced these almost invisible speakers, still give you the same sound quality. But in a car, that means that you're not having to make room for speakers. So in doors, for example, they might be able to redesign the way a door is. In the dash, or having that complete surround sound in your car with these incredibly thin speakers, maybe in headrests, maybe on B-pillars on the car mm. itself, maybe all around the dash. So you can have these speakers everywhere, but it just wouldn't look the same. Show us your speakers, James, and you go, they're everywhere. Just look around. They're everywhere. But it just wouldn't be good enough. Yeah. One thing I always find intriguing, and I've never actually been into super high-quality stereos in my car, and probably more relevant now, but back in the old days when you used to drive old cars that were noisy, I never quite understood it. You'd sit there beside someone at the that parking down the main street when you'd show off your speakers and it would sound fantastic, unbelievable sound quality. But as soon as you get in and start driving, you've got all this wind noise coming, these gappy windows, you've got this loud <laughs> engine running, you've got road noise. So how can you appreciate this very good quality stereo with all that other noise? Now, obviously with EVs now, you can probably appreciate it a bit more, but this is where we're headed with these super thin speakers. 
Now, they have been shown as something or a similar concept in some OLED TVs in the past. Both Sony and LG have had these. So, again, you're trying to build these super thin TVs, but you can't put very good speakers on them. A lot mm. of people have other ways of producing sound around their TV, but they've actually been using some of these similar type speakers in those TVs to get decent sound quality out of something that's very thin. But now applying it to cars, again, I can see some luxury cars doing it to really change the shape of that inside but yeah the old classics there's still going to be time and room for all those so you ones. think yeah that that trend is not dead that there will still be people there's always a market for putting in the big fat subbies surely and if LG did the research they'd have these speakers as well as some big ones as well to, to really impress those people <laughs> okay it was only a matter of time And it's finally happened now. And I find this story is very exciting, folks. It's going to get some people really thinking about where they stand on the issue of food production. The first lab-grown chicken meat is set to hit the U.S. market shelves very soon. It's been given the all-clear by the U.S. regulators. Matt, the phrase lab-grown chicken meat has all sorts of connotations, and the concept has important implications for the future. Let's ruffle ruffle some feathers and get the finger-licking details of this story. Well, it's funny, you know, we've done the stories on lab-grown meat and lab-grown blood, but let's not go there because you're not eating the blood, but lab-grown meat. And I had some people who said to me after they listened to that story, I felt a bit squirmish thinking of the idea of meat that wasn't grown on animal and you expect me to eat that. But funnily enough, I had some people who said the opposite. They said they felt squirmish about the idea of having a live animal that you kill and then take the meat off it and then eat that, oh, that sounds disgusting. But grow that same product in a lab, oh, I'm actually quite open to that idea. So as much as... I've always wondered how a vegan would feel about that because in terms of exploiting animals, you've, you've only ripped one cell from it effectively. Yeah, and I did actually talk to a few vegetarians, not vegans and vegetarians, about exactly this concept when we did the lab-grown meat story. And again, they were a bit mixed. Some of them said, yeah, I'll be quite comfortable with that. It's not killing an animal. I don't feel comfortable about killing an animal. So I'm quite comfortable with that. But other people said, or other vegetarians still said, you're still taking some part of an animal and then sure, growing it from there, still didn't feel that comfortable. But again, Mm. it's different ways of looking at things. We live in a wonderful community where everyone has got different opinions, different approaches to things. But at this stage, the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration in the US has said, we're giving approval for cell cultured chicken. Now, the reason they did it, which I find intriguing, is they've given it careful evaluation. Mm, what's careful evaluation <laughs> mean? And I'd rather see we've put it through a range of rigorous tests and here's all the results of those tests and everything's okay, it's safe to eat, but careful evaluation, does that mean they sit around the boardroom and go, what do you think? Mm. Yeah, that sounds pretty good. Oh, we've, we've evaluated that. Go for it. <laughs> and let's see how it goes out there. But I think the logic is, that we've talked about before, You've got atoms, you've got components, that the, the building blocks of nature, if you like, that make up things. If you can build it that same way through a different process or the same result, surely it's okay. And that's what the FDA is saying. It well, looks the, okay. The thing about growing growing your chicken meat in a Petri dish, and, and that, that idea sounds repulsive to some people. A lot of people, I mean, farmers will have their back up potentially about, oh, you know, you're taking away my business. But we're... 
we hit a population of 8 billion people. Mm. Um, and anyone who's had chicken nuggets doesn't really care about where the chickens come from or where the meats come from, surely. Are there but, chick- is there chicken in chicken nuggets? Is that part of it? Yeah, but, yeah, I, I, look, I don't want to offend anyone. I think there is chicken in chicken nuggets, but where, what part that came from, who knows? Look, uh, but, but we're talking about, yeah, we're not killing traditional farming here. We're trying to supplement it. Um, and, and in uh, a world that could be, and you know, we've had lots of floods and whatnot, but we also get lots of droughts, water is, uh, is a precious resource, fresh water that is. So if you're only supplying this meat with exactly the resources that it needs without the wastage that goes with traditional farming, then surely they can com- complement each other and feed a hungry planet. Yeah, I think you're absolutely spot on. One of the things is that you talk about the farming sector. It isn't designed to kill that sector off. It's really designed to produce enough food, as you say, to, to feed 8 billion people. The big thing here is that when you grow chicken in the laboratory, chicken or meat in the laboratory, you make incredible savings with carbon dioxide emissions. Yeah. You make incredible savings with water, water usage. So you're able to produce it more efficiently. So I see the future being you'll go to a supermarket, you'll see the lab-grown meat, the lab-grown chicken, you'll see the farm-grown chicken, the farm-grown meat, and they will sit there side by side on the shelves. There'll still be a place for both. But the big part, the really important part is that we'll be able to feed the number of people we've got on our planet. Mm. So if you see that lab-grown chicken meat in the supermarket, give it a go. I haven't tried it yet. I haven't seen I'm it I'm excited by it, yeah. And look, I even see that um, you know, farmers might all chip in, and, and Australian farmers are a communal sort of bunch, that they may even you know chip in and have a communal lab that they all sort of, uh, uh, you know, feed uh, you know with finance and whatnot but also take the the benefits from that back as well um and yeah i, I can see you know i can see that there's a real future in this and we'll think about exactly what you said maybe farmers end up with a lab on their farm so they're yeah. selling to the market lab grown and farm grown meat and yeah, yeah look, there's a market there. anyway Different. quite fascinating Humanity has taken another positive step forward to combat the global energy crisis and the key is innovation and diversification. I still hear, still hear mumblings about the validity and, of maintaining fossil fuel consumption and industrial age technology, which admittedly is likely to be around for some time still, but cleverness is overcoming the smog. And the Dutch are showing their cleverness this time with a floating solar array that follows the sun across the sky like a flower as it bobs about on the surface. Matt, what are the details about this? I think I want to move to the Netherlands. They do Sounds seem to do some cool. Yeah, they seem to do some quite innovative things in the Netherlands. So they seem to be looking at ways to change the accepted norm. I don't know what it is about people from the Netherlands, but good luck to them and well done. Mm. And if we can steal some of those ideas across the rest of the world, then that's fantastic as well. But in this particular scenario, we do hear people saying, "Oh no, those solar panels we're taking prime agricultural land and destroying it by putting solar panels on top. And I accept that. There is a valid argument there. I do question the motivation sometimes of people because we do see coal mines that seem to have destroyed huge chunks of prime Mm. agricultural land. And when I say destroyed, solar farms typically drive a post into the ground that can be removed later on. Typically, they're not concreted in. They're driven in through pressure, and then they can be removed. So you're not really destroying the land. But when you look at a coal mine and you see a huge gaping hole on the ground, it does look like destruction is the word that you'd use there. We've accepted that for a long time, but we don't seem to want to accept solar farms. But people are working on 
solutions. People are working on how can we do these things better, and this particular solution is fantastic. We don't hear many people say, oh, no, you're destroying prime bits of open water <laughs> to put solar panels on it. So maybe that's a good spot to do it. And that's exactly what this particular concept is, a 38-metre diameter solar array that floats. So you take that to any body of water, any lake, any dam, probably oceans, but more inlets or harbours rather than out in the big, rough, wild ocean, drop it in there, Run your cable, and that's the only tricky part. You've got to get it from there across to land, but underwater cables, that's no big deal. We do that all the time. Uh-huh. Run that across to land, and then you've got a nice little 70-kilowatt solar array. Now, these particular ones in this one move across with the sun because if you do follow the sun across, you produce about 40% more power than if you just leave them sitting stationary. And you do see some solar farms do actually move across. Sometimes I've seen where some large solar farms on the ground say, we're not going to worry about adding the technology in to move across. We're just going to put more solar panels on. So Mm. there's argument both ways. But this is trying to be very efficient with the space. So anywhere that you had somewhere that was a waterway that wasn't too strong in terms of its movement of water, currents, that type of thing, drop this on there and you've got a little solar farm. 70 kilowatts is not huge in the whole scheme of things, but it's not too bad. I mean, some houses, for example, have a 10 kilowatt system on them and that's more than enough to run the whole house and probably a 5 kilowatt system would run a house. So a 70 kilowatt system would probably be enough to run maybe 14 houses, but that's one. There's nothing stopping you if you had more water, putting in two or three or four, Mm. having somewhere near water where you could drop it on. And and I can see there are some farms that I know that would have Have dams, dams, larger than 38 metres across. So that water just sits there waiting to be used. Gee, why wouldn't you drop one of these on so you're not wasting that prime agricultural land? probably cut the evaporation down as well. Well, it's a good point. I hadn't thought about that. So you're keeping the water in there longer and you're actually producing some solar power from it. So it makes sense to me. But again, as we've talked about before, people are coming up with different solutions. And I had a very interesting discussion with someone the other day who told me that the concept of EVs was never going to work because... We'll never get enough electricity to be able to run all those EVs. And the only way we could possibly think about doing it is if we keep burning enough coal. And I went, well, there are some different ways of producing electricity. No, but you'll never produce enough electricity without burning coal, which is a very big statement to make. I gave him 50 cents and said, give me a call in five years' time when we shut down our last coal-fired power station and Mm. see how we go. But I think this is the sort of thing. We are coming up with different solutions. Putting solar panels out on water, fantastic. We've already got lots of wind turbines out in waterways. That's a fantastic spot to put wind turbines. Well, solar panels out there as well. I see that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, fantastic idea. Well, what do you do to entice the uber wealthy these days? I guess you've got to give them some uber luxury. Well, they tend to love boats. And they love really big boats. So why not build a Terry yacht? That's right, a terry yacht, folks. Not a mega yacht or a giga yacht. They'd surely be embarrassingly too small. You couldn't moor one of those in a bay at Monaco and not die of shame, I guess, these days. No, people, you're going to need a terry yacht if you're going to flex in 2023. So, Matt, exactly how big is a terry yacht and what's it going to set me back? I am concerned that they're using SI prefixes without actually any recognition of the numerical constant that they're talking about. Well, no, no, hang on. The yacht is the standard measurement right. so, <laughs> for a boat. Yeah. So when we get mega and now terra, when you take 
10 to the power of, how do you apply it in those sizes? <laughs> I think they're just throwing around these names willy-nilly, you know, James. I'm not sure if they've researched this properly. What, is it a marketing tool or something? Oh, no. Perish <laughs> <laughs> the thought. So this is a big yacht. I'm not going to say Terra Yacht because I just am offended by the use of the <laughs> SI prefix in that way. But, but it <laughs> makes the, makes the rich feel really good. Well, true, well, true. Okay. And the only thing I, I worried about a yacht. Well, the only thing I worried about there was if you said Terra Yacht spelt T E W R O R rather than T E R A, that might be bad. <laughs> <laughs> a yacht that's full of terror. Do you know the other thing I was thinking about? Well, people like you know, if you said mega yacht, people go, "Oh yeah, that's a really big yacht." We've jumped. The gigawatt of the <laughs> we, we, We've jumped over that one because, you know, giga, that's really big, but but it's not big enough. Yeah, maybe. T- Where did they go to exabot? Uh, like, yeah, sorry, sorry, Petter or, yeah, yeah, Petter Yacht. Exa Yacht. Yeah, So it's a big it's a big boat, and, and I'm not sure when it goes from being a boat to a yacht, but I reckon or this one. Island. Or an <laughs> Well, this one qualifies for probably all, all of those. It's 550 metres by 610 metres. So that's big. So how many Coliseums is that? <laughs> It's funny that you should mention that, James. What an interesting standard of measurement, the Colosseum. It just so happens that it's two Roman Colosseums. <laughs> <laughs> now, when did that become an SI standard, measuring prefix? <laughs> so they have used that as a, an example to compare it against. I don't know why. I don't know when. Football fields used to be the old thing, didn't it? It's so many football fields, but now it's Colosseums. You know, I've got a mate who's got a little tinny, and I reckon it's about 0.000000003 of a Colosseum. Right. <laughs> it's one of the little chambers <laughs> that they sat in and wait for the, to be attacked by the lion. So we've got this yacht, this terror yacht. I've said it, I know. And it's going to house 60,000 people. 60,000 right. 60, of your best friends. Oh. And I haven't the richest quite, friends. Well, that's right. I haven't quite worked out yet whether this is your home address or whether it's just somewhere you go as a resort to spend a week mm. there in complete luxury. Maybe some people would go there for a week and spend their lifetime there. I'm not sure. Hang on, look, I've, I've assumed it's luxury. Perhaps they're building this thing and it's just where they're going to stash all the people that they want to get out of the way. Well, we have to have somewhere to house 8 billion people, don't we? So yeah, maybe right. that's it. But uh, that's the thing I haven't been able to work out. I, all the information I read on it, looked at it, it looks like a resort. It looks mm. like a wonderful high resort. Uh, and you wouldn't call it a terra yacht if it was just a terra boat. Or a terra living apartment. Mm, yeah, yeah, so that okay, doesn't have the right. same ring to it, does it? So it probably is some sort of resort luxury accommodation. It's got beach clubs. It's got parks in there. It's got cycling tracks around there, people riding wow. their bicycle. Can you imagine that? That just does something strange to my head. Riding a bicycle around while I'm floating along on the ocean <laughs> seems a bit crazy somehow. Some and why did you bring your bike with you? <laughs> <laughs> We're going on a cruise, right? I better pack my bike. What are you thinking there? It does a fairly low top speed, nine kilometres an hour. So it's not the fastest Yeah, thing. right. So this thing is going to move. It's not just going to bob around on the coast off Monaco. I don't know how many times you would want to move it uh, maybe from port to port around a mm. country. But no, I can't see them saying, right, everyone, all aboard. We're going to go from Australia to America. Mm. On this yacht, we'll, we'll be there in a year's time. Maybe. And is the captain's name Noah? <laughs> 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 well, maybe with the rain we've had lately, maybe that's where we do need this. So it's got a jet tri- drive transmission. I just can't imagine how much fuel you need to have on board to run a city of 60,000 people. That sounds fairly incredible. They do talk about having some renewable power on there somewhere, but I just don't know how you'd fit enough renewable power. We talked in that last story about 38-metre mm. diameter for 70 kilowatts. Well, wow, you need to tow along about 100 of those to try and get enough power to run this whole thing. 
The only minor problem we've got at the moment is that the plans have been done. They're finished. They can show how it all works. They just need some investors. So this is an uh. investor call, James. <laughs> You've got to spare a few dollars. They just need approximately Australia $12 billion to build it. And then once it's done, away you go. So I'm wondering who had this idea. Um, and how, how it came to be. So someone's come up, he said, oh, we've got to build a big boat. And, and so they've planned it and they've designed it and the guy shook, shook his head and he said, no, no, That's it's, not a boat. To, it's not big enough. It's not a boat. This Can is you a make boat. it bigger? And so they've gone and made it bigger and he's gone, no, 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 still not big enough. <laughs> and so after 25 of those meetings, they finally go, yes, I think we've almost got it bigger. All right, how are we going to build this? I don't know. You got anyone it's, it's too big to build. Why do we make it this big? <laughs> so I don't know whether it was 25 beings and some credibility in that process or whether it just involved drugs. There might oh, have just right been one meeting. Yeah. They had some drugs beforehand <laughs> and then this is what they drew. And they got Homer Simpson into Jazama. <laughs> The boat. A double-sized Colosseum boat. Yeah, well, right. it's actually, and there might be some actual <laughs> fact based there because it actually looks like a turtle. The whole oh. shape of it is a turtle. Mm. I don't know why you'd Sounds make it a Terry turtle. Terry Pratchett. Oh, you have found Terry Pratchett books? No, not really. Okay, that's but, all right, okay. But, but it does sound strange. I don't know why you'd shape it like a turtle. I don't know whether it has little flappy wings. Was there a James wings? Bond movie where they had a big turtle dome that came out of the water? Was that Thunderball or something like that? Uh, there was a big yeah, yeah, dome yeah. that came out. of it was turtle shaped. It was, well, it was just uh, a dome. It was only half a Colosseum, though. <laughs> yeah, that's right. In the scheme of things, nothing. <laughs> so this is what our future may look like. I'm thinking Kevin Costner, maybe is the captain, rather than Noah. Okay. Kevin Costner, Waterworld. Waterworld, yeah. yeah. Yeah, with yeah, his, with his nice ears and he can breathe underwater. Well, I guess what you see, the levels are rising. Um, so, yeah. You might need something like this. But if we're that's our solution. of these Terry yachts. <laughs> that's right. When we've got 8 billion people to accommodate, then we're going to need more than. You're going to have your bike. You're going to need more than one or two of these, aren't you? So, this is where we're headed. The only other minor problem, apart from the $12 billion, is that they need to build a new shipyard to actually build <laughs> it. There's no shipyard in the world at the moment that is big enough, but they have got some plans in Saudi Arabia to build a shipyard custom-built custom built to handle this particular ship. If you're going to build a, a boat the size of two Coliseums, you're going to have to build it in Saudi Arabia. <laughs> That's right, exactly right. And the other only problem is eight years to build it. So we're excited about it now. I do know we talk about the future on this podcast we are definitely talking about the future here. This is eight years away. I look forward to our podcast in eight years' time. <laughs> when we it's say... About, remember that Terry yacht we were laughing about? <laughs> it's here. We've got tickets on it. <laughs> <laughs> so keep an eye out for that one, James. In eight years' time, we'll go for a trip on the oh, Terry let's yacht. Let's broadcast live from... <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right. Off in the distance, I can hear the piercing chorus of 30,000 whistles from a crowd at the World Cup, all calling for full time. And on that note, I want to wish... Uh, you all a very happy World Cup and well done to our very own Socceroos. Thanks for another cracking tech talk, Matt. Thank you. And there's no action replays on this, I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. the, the umpire's decision is final on this show. Well, I'm looking forward to some lab meat becoming a regular thing on the shelf. I reckon it's a game changer and I'm going home to mix up my own very own concoction of 11 secret herbs and spices. Thanks for joining us again, folks. For a quick glimpse into the future at Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson, I'm James Eddy, and it is a pleasure as always. We look forward to you catching up with us again in another week's time. Please like, subscribe, leave a comment, and spread the good word. <laughs>